This is Peace Talks Radio. We're the nonpartisan, nonpolitical forum on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Our guest for the hour is Janessa Gans Wilder, who runs a nonprofit organization called the Euphrates Institute that promotes peace building through dialogue and understanding and education, particularly surrounding conflict issues in the Middle East. Janessa was a CIA counterinsurgency analyst in Iraq, but when she became frustrated with the futility of the war effort, she asked for reassignment to working with Iraqi leaders to build the country's new democracy. Later, she left the CIA and began this Euphrates Institute, whose purpose became to make the other a brother. Janessa is on the line with us from Redding, California, headquarters of the Euphrates Institute. Thanks for joining us today on Peace Talks Radio, Janessa. Thank you, Paul. So nice to be here. Euphrates Institute began when? What year did you incorporate that? Well, I officially founded it right on the heels of that tour in Iraq that you mentioned in, at the beginning of 2006. So I was ready for complete change from CIA work, counterinsurgency, and counterterrorism, and really had no idea what I was doing at first, but officially started it in 2006, but then it actually took quite a few more years before I got things off the ground. To start, so our listeners can get kind of oriented, what's your thumbnail description of what the Euphrates Institute is doing best right now, some 10 years into its history? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the best thing we're doing is creating a global community of peace builders around the world who are intent on turning the other into a brother. And that was really what I experienced personally in Iraq, seeing Iraqis as the enemy, seeing them as the other, and then having an experience by the Euphrates River and opening up my thought and my heart to seeing them as partners and as friends. And we now have 25 chapters around the world of people who are are doing exactly the same thing in their own communities, from Burundi to Brussels, Belgium, from Seattle to St. Louis, from Pakistan to Palestine. It's amazing to see in the local context how people are taking these ideas of transformation, of peace building, making it their own, and building bridges and healing divides right right there at home. All right. Well, I do want to kind of slow that down and get into some detail about how that's happening and what you're learning about peace building through this initiative. But I do want to get to the backstory uh, about you personally. So how did you come to be a CIA officer in the first place? You were a Stanford graduate, is that right? Yeah. And actually, they were recruiting at Stanford. And what were you angling for back in college? And, and how did you you know, wind up Uh, following through with that recruitment that they were doing there? Well, I always had an interest in international affairs ever since my loving parents at the time at 12 years old, they sent me off to France for a year. And I lived with a, a French family, went to French school, learned the language and just became so immersed in another culture. And it really opened my eyes at that young age to that there's a whole world outside there that is fascinating and interesting and different ways of seeing the world. And so ever since then, I had been really, really interested in international affairs, international politics, and studied that all through college and in graduate school at Stanford. And so when the recruiter at this booth, I I was chatting with him and he said, well, imagine instead of writing a paper for your teacher, you're writing for the president. And imagine instead of briefing your classmates on the world, you're briefing the cabinet, you know, briefing the top policymakers about what's going on in the world 
and it's for the goal of improving America's standing in the world and and um, you know really knowing global issues and so it just seemed like a, such a perfect way to put what I'd always been interested in which is how the world works and how can America be even more of a force for good in the world I felt that we were a force for good but that there were always things that could be improved and I love this idea of being the one with the closest you know in the field on the ground with the best information and the best intelligence of what was going on abroad in order to uh, inform our policymakers and inform our policies. So it sounded really attractive. And we uh, got in a conversation, I left my resume there, and then I got a call back and went through the whole process, which includes lie detector tests and background checks and everything. And so it's, it's a very lengthy, involved process. Let me ask, did that recruiter then really, as you think back on it now and maybe even then, make work with the CIA sound like a peace-building job? Uh, no, it didn't sound like a peace-building job, but it, the the emphasis for him was on the intelligence, the, the understanding what's going on in X country in order to best inform our country, you know, our country's leadership. And I loved that idea. So to me, the idea of being the one in the field, on the ground, getting a feel for the place, getting an understanding, and because I think a lot of our misguided policies were that we didn't have a clear under a grasp of what was going on in that country and what was what was fueling its what they were about and what they were doing. And so if we were more informed, we would have better policies. So I think in that way, he was being accurate. And this had to be in the wake of 9-11, this conversation, this recruitment. It was No. So this was Janu- This was 2000, and I started in January of 2001. So nine months into my training, 9-11 happened. So I could go into lots of detail there, but to say the least, it was a very tumultuous and fascinating time to be you know, in D.C., in the CIA, in that field when 9-11 happened and everything changed and it certainly changed the direction of my life um, from that moment on. Well, I can't resist asking you about that then. Yeah, well, for starters, I had always avoided the Middle East. I just thought it was a place of no interest to me. You know, I didn't see any hope or light there. It was just people fighting over a sand pit for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And, oh, it'll just never change. And there was not the allure of that region that I had experienced in every other part of the world. So I'd actively avoided writing any paper about it, studying about it in college or grad school, and just had no interest. And so then 9-11 happened, and I was actually in the middle of a military briefing at that moment, and one of uh, the briefers, one of the soldiers came in and informed us what had happened. We were immediately evacuated and because um, we were at a secret uh, military base. And anyway, my colleague t- leaned over and whispered to a few of us, that's Osama bin Laden. And she was a counterterrorism analyst, and, and I was sort of like, who? You know, who's Osama bin Laden? And and she knew immediately, and they held her back so that she could actually help in real time uh, intelligence gathering because she was one of the experts. 
And so anyway, that was just the shock of what had happened and what that meant and, and why and how did we not know and all these, uh, all these questions. But then going back to the office, I was immediately transferred to a task force working on Afghanistan as, in the, as the Afghan war ramped up and supporting that effort, joint wartime operations and all of that. So I ended up working two years on Afghanistan. And then in 2003, when the Iraq war started, I was so desperate to leave my cubicle, let's just put it that way, because for two years, working on Afghanistan and, and becoming, you know, I was actually working on the political team for the first part of that. And it was just difficult for me to conscience being an expert on a place that I'd never been to. I didn't, I'd never met an Afghan. I didn't speak the language. I didn't know much about the religion. It was such a foreign place to me. And here I was being considered an expert. And I really found that hard to stomach. And I had been lobbying and pushing relentlessly for a trip there, for uh, you know, a placement there. And there just wasn't the space or time or inclination on my boss's part to make that happen. So when the Iraq war started in 2003, and they actually were put a call out for volunteers for 90 day assignments in, in country in Iraq. And I remember having the thought I would rather dodge bullets than sit in my cubicle one more day. I've got to get in the field. And because for, you know, a lot of analysts were really book smart and could put pieces together. And but for me, I'm just learning, you know, learned about myself personally there has to be more of that gut feeling that you take in a place by being there. You, you sense a vibe, you connect with people, you have a feeling for what's going on and that would inform my analysis. But if it's just cold, hard looking at reports and putting the pieces together, I felt that I couldn't trust my gut. So anyway, going this idea of going into the field 90 days. So I asked them if I could switch to a completely different office and focus on Iraq and do that 90 days. And they agreed. And then 90 days turned into 21 months. Right. So what kind of work did you expect to be doing? And then what kind of work did you wind up doing? Did they line up? Uh, I didn't have any expectations. And as soon as we got there, it was very fluid and uh, fast moving. And so what I started doing was um, changed pretty quickly. And a few months into it, uh, became a counterinsurgency an, an analyst because this was as the insurgency was ramping up and we were trying to figure out what is motivating this, what is driving this. And because it sort of seemed to happen out of nowhere. And of course, now we look at factors, you know, Paul Bremer, who at the time was the head of the Coalition Provisional Authority and his disbanding of the army and debathification and all these things. But all of a sudden, this insurgency was ramping up really intensely. And so I became the analyst for Western Iraq, which is Al-Anbar province, about a third of the country. And in Al-Anbar province are places like Fallujah and Ramadi. And my task was to understand and, and piece together a picture of the other. Who, who was running this insurgency? Who was their, what was their leadership structure? Um, how are they funded? Who are they in cahoots with? Was it Islamists? Was it Ba'athists? Uh, were, they, were they foreigners or all Iraqis? And what were their motivations? What were their tactics? Just painting a picture as well as we could for our leaders and the military of what was driving this insurgency. 
So that meant not only to take that top view strategic look, but also to spend as much time as I could in the field. So I was traipsing around with the military a lot in places even like Al-Qaim right on the border with Syria, in Fallujah regularly in Ramadi, and then also back in Baghdad, trying to, you know, going out with them on their activities, meeting their sources, and then our sources in the field, and really painting that picture. And then I would report back to the military how the strategic place could help them understand better their tactical operations, because they were just focused on when was the next bomb going to go off, and who was doing it, and how do we get that guy in jail? And instead of seeing that one person who put down the roadside bomb was being paid by, you know, a former regime uh, Bathist for the purpose of X, you know, so they couldn't see where that person fit into this bigger insurgency. So it was really important to have those two pieces mesh. In general, Janessa, did you feel like you got uh, good answers to those questions that you just laid out a couple minutes ago to paint the portrait as uh, time was uh, going on during your assignment? Uh, that's a great question. I, I, I mean, as well as I could without, again, I didn't know the language. I had an interpreter. I, the, the, the sources were limited. We weren't embedded with the Rockies in the field. You know, to me, there was always that division. There, were, there was us behind bases, and then there were the people out there. And to really get to know and get a feel for the place, you know, don't you have to just be living amongst them and, and working together? And there was always just this really stark division. And so how much could you really know? But it, as far as we did the best that we could under those circumstances. It sounds like it was probably an angst-riddled time, though, in terms of, you know, you think you know something, but you don't feel like you have the whole picture, and so there's some piece that you don't have, and I would imagine it would be hard to sleep at night not knowing how close you are to the rest of the picture that's really going to do any good and possibly save lives. Right. Yeah, that's a very good observation. And and so how do you get, right, relentlessly seeking more to complete that picture and to, and to keep us safe? And, and And then also just the other thing that was exhausting was this feeling that it wasn't doing any good. Even when we nabbed a top insurgent leader or got someone off of the high value target list, it, it was a never ending fight. It seemed that for every one person we took off the list, 10 more would fill his place. And so the metaphor that kept coming to mind is this is like catching drops of water from a leaky faucet. Great. You catch that drop of water, but it just keeps coming. And so until we, focused on the roots of what was driving this, what was really at the bottom, the motivations of what was driving this insurgency, it felt like a fruitless effort that all this money and resources and manpower thrown at fighting the problem was not actually leading to the solution. And honestly, that for me, it culminated in, in being in Fallujah uh, in April 2004 during that first two weeks of the major, it was the first major battle in Fallujah, and seeing our Marines coming back, wounded from the field and being very close to the front lines, and I just kept thinking, what it, how is this all worth it? What are we, what are we doing? You know, what? Look at the impact on these soldiers' lives. Look at the money we're throwing at this. Look at the effort. Look at the fatigue and 
sleepless nights and danger I'm putting myself into. And for what? What was the point? And there was no end in sight. And it was just the darkest culminating point of that whole nine months of working on counterinsurgency that I felt that there was no way out. There was no way forward. And the darkness just engulfed me in a way that I had never physically and mentally and emotionally experienced before. We'll have more of Janessa's story just ahead. Janessa Gans Wilder, founder of the Euphrates Institute, working to promote understanding about the people and issues in the perpetual conflict zone of the Middle East. More in a minute. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Twice the recipient of the University of New Mexico Paul Ray Peace Prize. You can find out more about what we do and why and how you can help support the work at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Our entire archive of programs dating back to 2002 is there for you to make your own continuing education course on peacemaking. Why not take our show a week challenge? If you listen weekly to this station, you'll get it, or you can listen to each show online once a week from number one to our latest. In about four years, you can call us and we'll send you your peace diploma. Now more with today's guest, Janessa Gans Wilder, former CIA analyst who worked in Iraq, but then left the agency to open her nonprofit peace-building organization called the Euphrates Institute. All right, so tell us about this aha moment you had along the Euphrates River then. So a few weeks after that, low point, very, very low point, (laughs) I was staying with Special Forces um, just a few miles up the road from Fallujah and Ramadi, and their, their base is right alongside the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River meanders all through my area of operations, you know, all through Western Iraq, this river cuts through the desert and it sort of creates a patch of green on either side. And when you, we always had helicopters getting us to and fro and you'd see this little patch of green and then everything was desert other than that. So it's just this incredible feature running through this landscape. And I'd gone for a run one evening and went up to the roof on top of the Special Forces base and their base there overlooking the river just to relax and reflect. And what I took in was such an incredible scene because it was so different than what I had just come from in the war zone with deafening bombs and the stress and the fatigue. And this picture, you know, if I could describe it, it was just this beautiful, peaceful, 
meandering of this river. And it was so quiet that the only thing I could hear was the faint gurgling of the water and the swaying of the reeds, you know, as the wind blew through them. And it was just, I was straining my ears. I couldn't hear any human activity and obviously no bombs, no mortars, no rockets. And it was just a picture of stillness. And as it was sunset and this beauty of this bright blue sky and this bright blue river and this sunset and just the, the beauty and peace that that river that, that the picture was in front of me was just astounding. And I realized that just a few miles downstream, this river also flowed right through downtown Fallujah, right in the midst of what had been the death and destruction and chaos. And, and the contrast of that hit me that the, the beauty and peace of this and stillness of this river were flowing right in the middle of that war zone. And they were happening in exactly the same space at the same time. And the thought that came to me out of nowhere was, which picture will you choose? If they're happening in the same space at the same time, which one will you focus on? Because I had not even been aware of this beauty and stillness of the river in the midst of the war zone. But at that moment, the stress of the war zone left me completely and all I could take in was just the beauty of that river. And it was so obvious at that moment that the river was the obvious choice because no matter how many bombs went off, no matter how much death and destruction around it, it could not stop the flow of that river. So I said to myself, I, cho- I choose the river <laughs> not knowing what that meant or, or anything, but it was just so clear. Do I want life and peace or death and destruction? Right. And so I, I, I chose it, and then that was another turning point in my life. So you made a decision to get out and, and do what? What did you think at that time? Well, all I knew is that I didn't want to do um, counterinsur- counterinsurgency an- analysis anymore. And so I knew that much, and I went back just you know, the next day or two days later, I can't remember, to Baghdad. And I went into my boss and said, I'm, I'm done doing counterinsurgency analysis. I want to do something positive, you know, build something and not just tear down and take out. And so we brainstormed and he was very understanding. And we marched down to the embassy and talked to them about what it could look like to uh, have me in one of those positions. And so I went from, get this, <laughs> I went from being a counterinsurgency analyst, which included things like having to interrogate people in Abu Ghraib and, you know, just really the dark side to being the liaison to human rights group, Iraqi human rights groups and to political parties in advance of the first ever democratic elections. So to working on human rights and democracy. And so to go from interrogating people and fighting against them you know, very us versus them to all of a sudden being sitting on the same side of the table, working together with Iraqis, seeing them as partners and friends. Whereas before I hadn't even seen them as, as human beings. I'd seen them as targets to take out was mind blowing and (laughs) to say the least. And from the very beginning, just see, just listening instead of interrogating, you know, working together instead of fighting against. And this huge shift for me and really opened up in my thought ways of connecting 
um, and, and seeing people so completely differently that it just, yeah, it just changed my whole experience there and my relationships with Iraqis. As you're telling that story, I'm sort of imagining that CIA supervisors, your boss, higher-ups, maybe see this sort of story happen every once in a while, and I'm thinking that, okay, they're thinking this is an example of burnout. Mm. You know, we see this from time to time, and we have to accommodate our people uh, and respond and try to find placements where they can ease the symptoms that are creating the burnout. Did it feel that way to you in a bit? Uh, I wish it, I wish it felt, I wish I agreed with what you said because that would um, be very inspiring and, and hopeful. But I think more often it's just, that's, that's the system. That's where our resources are directed. That's how it's easier to focus on the problem and just taking out the problem solutions are so messy and require so much patience and effort and openness to alternative ideas. And, and it may not work at first, but maybe 10 years down the road, it's just so unclear. And it's, and it really requires daily leaps of faith that I think our whole way our foreign policy is wired is, you know, the American foreign policy attention span is is short. We we want to see immediate results. We want to see X, Y, Z taken out, X problem solved, and we'll throw a lot of money and resources at it, but it doesn't ever really take care of the problem. And even military experts and uh, academics, everyone I've talked to on the subject of counter you know, countering extremism, they all agree that just take, you know, even if we take out ISIS, the next iteration of Islamic extremism will be even more severe, even more barbaric, just like ISIS was worse than Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda was worse than, you know, Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood was worse than its predecessor. And so each time, because the root isn't addressed. And so they even acknowledge that right. we need resources, we need attention in other ways. Yes, let's put pressure militarily on ISIS. Let's rescue those enslaved girls. Let's deny them more safe havens and fertile ground. But let's also throw a bone to building up democracy, building culture and understanding and and nonviolence at the roots, because that's really the only thing that's going to solve it in the long run. And I just don't think we have the patience for that. And we don't have a system politically that is set up to value that or to support that. And it's tragic. Well, um, in working to build democracy there in that particular case, um, did you get a sense that, um, well, you say we're impatient. I mean, uh, we're still working on democracy 260 years later. Yeah, it's a great question because I think our focus is wrong. I mean, democracy is always important to support, but not the practices of democracy, which is what we focus on. We need to focus on the principles of democracy, the practices. We equate democracy with a constitution, elections, you know, separate independent judiciary. And when instead we should be focused on supporting the principles of democracy, which are universal, those practices are not universal. They may not work in an Eastern or Middle Eastern culture or an Islamic culture, but the principles of a transparent, accountable, uh, you know, equal and free speech minded uh, government, those principles are universal and applicable in any situation, but the practices that they may, that they might look like, 
in a Muslim country or in Iraq will be very different. Maybe it's a tribal shura, you know, tribal council, or um, you know, a religious council made up of different religions, or it may not look like our practices. So we spend so much time pushing elections, pushing a constitution, pushing all of these Western models of democracy that they, we wonder then why they don't work. But if we looked at what does transparency look like? What does accountability look like? What does equality look like in this context? What is the balance between the individual and the collective? What does feedback and evaluation look like? All those principles that might have a very different model there and yet they are universal. They, they are important to any human society. I think we would go a lot, a lot farther. But again, that requires that flexibility and openness, and it's not as clear-cut. You can't just put elections on and then call it a democracy. You know, it takes a lot more consulting and listening and, and creating brand-new structures. And so, again, that's that, where that patience comes in um, that I just don't, I don't think we have that model. All right, so it sounded like it was a hopeful step and a bit transformative for you to start working on that end of the equation, but it was not enough to keep you invested in continuing your CIA career. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, it it was a huge shift, but um, and I was thinking all over the place. You know, well, would State Department be better than CIA? But then people would say, you know, no environment is like Iraq, and if you go to another posting. It's very hierarchical, bureaucratic, top-down. Um, it's not as, you know, we had a lot of flexibility and freedom, and, and it was a war zone. I mean, things were different. Things had to be different because of the uniqueness of the situation and having diplomats in a war zone. So there were a lot of rules and normal protocols that you didn't have to follow. So I thought, well, I just, that sounded limiting. And so just at the end of the day, I thought that the biggest aha moment for me was when I came back. So I had just lived, breathed, and eaten (laughs) and slept Iraq and how what was going on there was so critical to every American. You know, from the gas we put in our car to this being the, the cradle of civilization to the security implications, the terrorism, the wars that we're fighting, the, the money that we're spending, the soldiers we're sending off to die and the birthplace of our religions, it just was so clear to me how critical this part of the world, and remember, I had always avoided that part of the world, and then it was this awakening that, oh my goodness, what happens here in this place is directly affecting every American back home, and yet we don't know that. So when I, when, and then when I come home, and there's this incredible disconnect, not only were people unaware of, you know, ignorant of the situation and the implications, and the impact that it had on us and that we had on them. But there was this idea that, what? We're fighting a war? You know, it had no effect on their daily lives and there was a complete disconnect between what was going on here and what people thought about in their daily lives to what was really going on. And I got, and I thought, gosh, that, that's the thing I want to address. Not necessarily the direction of our foreign policy because I think it's hard to influence that from being in the middle of the bureaucracy and in the middle of that environment of Washington is so crisis driven. It's politically driven. It just was not thinking big picture about how do we really make changes that benefit 
you know, the, the globe, America and that part of the world and the world. And so how do you, there was no time for that kind of reflection or big picture thinking. But then to see this disconnect between the American public's understanding of what was going on and what I had just experienced, that does not bode well for direction that we want to be taking in foreign policy and public engagement in those decisions in the world. So that was um, the first idea behind Euphrates was how do we build bridges between the people of the United States and the Middle East, you know, of these issues so we can be more engaged, more involved and more aware of what's going on and then and then do something about it and do something about it on an individual level and a community level and a national and political level. We're, we're all such agents now through the internet, through this amazing equalizing that's going on in our um, influence that we can have in the world. We need to capitalize that and use that to, to promote the, the changes we want to see. So you quit. Yes. <laughs> you quit. And that must have been a pretty risky decision at the time if you have parents or loved ones or friends who maybe admired even the work that you were doing or presumed that you could have moved around in U.S. government circles and yeah, absolutely. kept good benefits and a good salary and done different kinds of work, but you just scotched it and started over, it sounds like. Yeah, and it was really hard to go from feeling like you're in the middle this, you know, the center of the universe where people who matter are know who you are and are reading your stuff and, and to all of a sudden be a nobody. I mean, that's what it felt like that you're somebody and, you know, looks great on your resume and you have this position and influence and, and then nothing. And then you're a nobody trying to start something that no one has ever heard of <laughs> and no one cares about. Well, how did you pull yourself through that transition? And I'm always curious about how somebody makes a decision to jump off the uh, yeah. merry-go-round and start again. And in this case, you know, try to in- initiate something that you felt was closer to your values. Yeah, a combination of help from others that practically, you know, I started it for six months. I couldn't make the project work. Our first idea was going to be um, bringing solar power generators to Baghdad because so many of my meetings had started out with, I appreciate your goals and what you're trying to do, but we don't have electricity and it's 130 degrees and we can't even go to sleep at night. It's so hot. And I thought, well, if you show some tangible evidence of goodwill, then that is a, it's a tangible bridge. And then you are likely to work on the bigger things and the bigger issues. But anyway, again, just being so new and starting off and halfway into these conversations of how many amperes will fuel each generator. And I'm coordinating all these conversations with Iraqi engineers and American engineers. I thought, this is not where my talents are best suited. (laughs) This is not what I don't want to be spending all my time um, doing this. So anyway, help, friends helping me get consulting jobs. I became a consultant to the State Department. I taught at my undergraduate alma mater for several years while I was doing, all the while I was doing Euphrates on the side. So that combination of getting a slow start as I figured things out, and then honestly, on the other side was just spiritual growth. Because when you do feel that your identity is wrapped up in your job, in your career, and then all of a sudden, all that's taken away from you. 
And then what do you, who, who are you? What is your identity? What are you about? What do you matter? And do you have evidence that you matter? And so that has been a, a never ending process of, of spiritual growth and self-realization to, to not tie that to a job or to even an impact or a career and really to find it in something more substantial. So that, that really started off a long process of, um, of deepening spirituality as well, which has been wonderful. Former CIA officer Janessa Gans Wilder is our guest. She was the, with the agency for five years, including nearly two years in Iraq from 2003 to 2005 in the midst of the war there. And as we've been talking, she left the CIA and formed the Euphrates Institute, an organization that builds peace and understanding about critical Middle East issues. Sounds like there were times, though, in those early days when you thought this seems like a Don Quixote charging at the windmills affair, doesn't it? I have, well, actually still, annually, I get some feeling or experience that I am ready to be done with this, and I will, I will quit at a moment's notice if something else comes along, and and then of course it pa- the feeling passes and everything is right in the world. And but it's hard, you know. And every person in this field, and I'm sure you have experiences like this too, and or maybe feel this, but it it feels often that you're all alone and that this is an uphill battle. And you wonder how to keep going because it's an isolated, tough journey in so many ways. And so I, what keeps me going and gets me past those humps are the connections to people doing this kind of work around the world. And so I'm so inspired by their example, their moral courage, their, the risks that they're taking, the sacrifices, what they're able to do in the face of such amazing odds. And I think, gosh, I would have given up, but they've kept going. So then that makes me want to keep going. And so thank goodness we have this community of support, which I love that your radio show is supporting that because this is an uphill battle and we're not the norm and it's not easy. The odds are against us, but isn't that what creates, um, it creates change when those people refuse to give up and when they keep going. And it's so vital to, to stay connected and to feel inspired and to, and to keep rejuvenating and refueling in that way. Otherwise I think, you know, we'd all give up. Right. Right. Well, it's uh, sounds like it's similar for both of us because when I start to get those feelings, then I get an email from your uh, uh, publicity assistant who, tries to hit me to your project and then I get a little juice from your project and then we put a little juice out there and see what happens. That's right. That's how it yeah. works. In one minute, we'll wrap up our conversation with Janessa Gans Wilder, co-founder of the peacebuilding nonprofit organization, the Euphrates Institute. I'm Paul Ingalls. Stay tuned.
It's Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. If you're hearing us this week on a public radio station or an online station, please take a minute to send an email to that station. Let them know how much you appreciate them holding out some broadcast real estate for our nonpartisan forum about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. And if you're hearing us online through our website, think about mounting a campaign to get our program on your local public radio outlet. Let them know what it is that you'd like to hear it and have the station get in touch with us through our website, peacetalksradio.com. More now with today's guest, Janessa Gans Wilder, the former CIA analyst who worked in Iraq, but then left the agency to open the Euphrates Institute, a nonprofit peacebuilding organization. When did you actually start to see something in your own organization, though, that gave you confidence that it was worthwhile work? Uh, Some project piece of it that started to feel like you were getting some traction and feeling more confident about staying with the project? Uh, Well, certainly there have been things throughout. You know, in 2010, I did a uh, put on a major global summit two dozen Middle East peacemakers and American experts and ambassadors and um, gathering for a few days in the Midwest when I was teaching there at Principia College. And that was so powerful to have, uh, you know, we had a session on people who were informing people about Middle East issues and then inspiring them with models of change and how do you actually, cre- you know, what are examples of transformation and, and uh, peace building on the ground? And then the last session was transformation. So what does, what does it take? What is transformation? How do you create space for transformation, personal, community, and global? And so the impact from that, from seeing all of these thought leaders together and sharing ideas was really what launched me into it full time. And I committed to this and, and said, this, there is power in this. There's inspiration in this. This is needed. This, we need each other. We need this community. We need these ideas. We need these ideas out in the world. That's been huge. And then, but honestly, it's... Well, let me, pause, let me ask you to pause there before we leave that uh, picture of that uh, gathering. So was there a particular person that told a particular story that you would reference as enlightening, um, interesting, uh, surprising yeah. in that process that, you know, where you're, where you're watching it unfold. I, I mean, I know, know I've experienced things like this just in radio shows where there's one particular story that just says, okay, this is what we're talking about. Yes, there was, um, such a powerful moment. Our, uh, our keynote speaker was, uh, I actually created this award called the visionary of the year just to recognize him because he's so amazing, but his name is Sammy Awad. Do you know him? Palestinian? I don't, um, living in Bethlehem. And he started the group called the Holy land trust, but he, so in his talk, he was talking about how he was invited by Palestinian refugee. He was invited by, some Jewish contacts that he had made to visit Auschwitz and Palestinians usually shy away from learning about or focusing on the Holocaust because they say, well, it detracts from our, you know, Holocaust, our Nakba, which is the same word as Holocaust catastrophe. And, but he, he wanted to go and he had such a moving experience there seeing what had happened and letting himself feel that and 
and open emotionally to that. And then he saw a group of Israeli teenagers who were there on a visit and they were all wearing the Israeli flag and their instructor was telling them, this isn't just your past. This is not only your past, but it's your present and it's your future because we have so many enemies out there. And unless you are strong and secure, this will happen again and again. This is your future. And he just realized as a Palestinian, they, they're talking about me and I have to, I want to prove to them that I am not their future. I am not their enemy. I will not be that continuing link for them that creates that sense of incredible terror and fear and violence and continues that cycle of trauma and killing. And he said, until I am ready to acknowledge that I am part of this and I refuse to be, you know, I'm continuing the problem or whatever. And it was just powerful. And of course I'm paraphrasing, but anyway, we were all so moved and everyone leapt to their feet and there was a standing ovation. And then the fellow speaker with him on the stage was a rabbi and she got up and walked over to him and they embraced on the stage in front of everyone. And you know, people were crying and it was a moment in front of our eyes of awakening, like you said, of, of, of division healed, of fear healed and of this peace that just emerged. It was so powerful to see it right in front of us. And yeah, it was definitely um, an amazing moment. So do you take a moment like that and what does it do to your belief system? Uh, does it instantly magnify or enlarge to say, well, if it can happen on this stage between these two people, that it can happen between nations? I think it's, it's um, because I've seen that and then I lead trips every year to the Middle East and I've seen so many more experiences like that happening there. And I think, gosh, if that can happen there, you know, if that can happen between these two people who are supposed to be enemies, if that can happen between these two countries who have been fighting for centuries and the inspiration of that, that if, if it's possible there, it is possible anywhere for anyone. And I love exposing people to that example because so many, in fact, on our last trip, when we went to the Middle East, um, it was a group of Americans and they're, they're seeing the impossible, you know, they're seeing an 18 year old boy who has had his brother killed and family shot in front of him. And yet he knows that violence is not the answer. And he's working together with settlers, Israeli settlers who have taken over the town next to him and they're working together on peace. And you're hearing him talk about what forgiveness is and what peace means and why he's chosen that path. There were Americans from that hearing him and you just see the sincerity change their entire view of not only how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict can be solved, but also, oh my goodness, how am I practicing forgiveness in my community? You know, if I don't like Republicans or Democrats or if there are divides in my family and 
It's not like someone's been killed. And yet I have a really hard time working with them and seeing them as partners and being open to their ideas. And so the example of transformation that comes from there because it is so powerful and because it is so unlikely can be a model of inspiration and hope for anyone around the globe. And that's what I'm seeing with these chapters, whether it's here in Redding, California, or Sub-Saharan Africa, or Pakistan, or India, they are, we share those models, we share those examples, we share the, the skills to create the space for transformation, and then they're applying that in their local context. And that's what's powerful, because you don't want to just say, oh, we care about peace in the Middle East, and we're going to, you know, well, we're, we're not Israeli and Palestinian, we're not Syrian, we, we can support them in their efforts. We can support that critical critical path and endeavor in those groups, and we have partnerships with those groups. But at the end of the day, what really matters is what are you doing in your own day-to-day life, in your own family, in your own home, in your own community, in your own country, because that's actually the only thing that you have control over and cr- can create change in. So it's so empowering to translate you know, support what's going on over there and be inspired by it. But what are you doing? What are you doing every day to further it, to make it possible in your home, in your community? That's the power. So how do you convince people to do that, to do something that seems difficult or that they may still feel some fear over? Um, Even those who would be somewhat sympathetic to your mission, how how do you uh, engender some participation Huh, that's a good question. I hope and pray for the best. <laughs> but well, so let, me, let me rephrase that. It seems to me that, that your mission is tied toward investing people into, you know, creating chapters so that they're reaching out to people in their community and having salons and conversations and events. Yeah, I think the the most successful way it has happened is when people have a personal experience, you know, either we'll give a talk or they'll, or we'll, or we'll have a speaker come where someone can actually hear directly from someone from the Middle East. And they have a complete, they walk away with a different perspective and a different mindset and a, an inspiration. And so then they want to be involved. They want to be engaged. And so usually having that, your mind open then leads to that engagement. But I think also in the U S we've been seeing a surge of, interest in our chapters because of the election. And so something happened in the election where so many people... The presidential election of 2016 you're talking about. Yes, exactly. And so people thought, okay, this now this matters to me. This is here at home. I can't talk to my brother anymore. I can't talk to my friend. Um, there's such division in my community because of that election. You know, the Democrats are hating the Republicans and vice versa, and we can't talk. And we don't know, and we're so divided, we see completely opposite in our values and our ideas and way forward. And so we've just seen this surge of interest because all of a sudden it's hit home. And this con- this idea of conflict and what that does to a community and to a family has felt very tangible and real to folks. And it is motivating them to get involved, to say, well, how do I turn the other into a brother? How do I listen to the other? What does that even look like? And yet, I'm motivated to do that because this is painful, and this is hurting us, and this is not getting 
us where we need to go as a nation or me, you know, in my circles. And so it's interesting how pain can be a motivator and inspiration can be a motivator because I love seeing that gleam in someone's eye when they hear a story of something that's impossible. You know, we every year we highlight a visionary of the year and it's just incredible what this one person like last year, it was a um, young Iraqi pianist who started the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq when she was 17. She was an orphan. She had no money, no resources, no ideas of how to do this, and ended up bringing young people from all over the country for six or seven years in a row, performing to sold-out audiences in Europe and making the impossible possible, bringing together Kurds and Christians and Sunni and Shia, all making beautiful music together and And these kids describe this orchestra as their lifeline. It's their one way to be human. It's their way to connect, to be, you know, all Iraqi together. And so her story, we took her across the country um, from the UN. She spoke at the UN on the International Day of Peace to Stanford to everywhere in between. And so having people be exposed to this idea of this young woman and what one person can achieve is just inspiring. You cannot walk away being humbled and inspired by what she accomplished and what her goals are and dreams. So that I think that combination of pain and inspiration, it can be motivating factors. And a lot of people, even in the nonprofit community, we had a retreat and um, about 20 to 25 nonprofits. And a lot of them were saying, you know, the past eight years of Obama's administration we were pretty apathetic and we didn't do all we could and we weren't really motivated and and now we're going to get busy and reach young people and not in a political way but just in a way that starting these conversations starting being open and not just retreating into our political camps but how do you really bridge divides and engage and so in that way when there's upheaval and conflict i i hope and and it seems that that can be that can motivate us to a new place. It can actually be a gift. Were they apathetic? Do you think because they presumed that a President Obama would fix things? I think, in a way, exactly. And that is such a good point because if our model is that change happens from the top, from government, from our political leadership, then we're all going to sit back and just wait for that to happen. And yet the studies of social change, and I always go back to this fascinating study out of Stanford from Everett Rogers, who... Yeah, he taught at the University of New Mexico here too, later in his career. Oh my goodness. So, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with his theories and diffusion of innovations and, but it's so empowering because it's this idea that change starts at the very bottom with these, what he called innovators, just 2% of the population who had a new idea or a new vision or a new mindset of what's possible. And then they would share that. And then the early adopters, uh, once that that was about 5% of the population, and once they adopted the new idea, it was considered embedded. And between five and 20% just, you know, you don't need 90% of the population, but once five to 20% of the population accepted the new idea or implemented the new vision, it hit a tipping point, after which point change was unstoppable. And it reached the it reaches the entire population, and most interestingly, that in his in his writings, um, Dr. Rogers says that those late adopters, the ones at the very end of the curve who reluctantly adopt the change, are usually 
people in positions of leadership and power and influence, which completely makes sense because you're going to be loath to accept major social change if you're benefiting from the current situation. So instead of looking to our leaders for change, for, you know, for what we are yearning to see realized in our nation, and our world, we have to be the, the ones who create the change and eventually they will follow. And it's such an empowering model because it really shows us how important and vital each one of us is and that we're the ones to do the work and not to just look to our leaders and hope that they'll fix everything because these issues are too big for our leadership to figure, you know, these global issues, whether it's climate change or conflict or anything in between, it needs each one of us to step up and do our part as a, as a citizen, as a global citizen to solve them. I really, really believe that. Well, it's a little ironic that people got apathetic waiting for President Obama to fix things when from the start, his mantra was, yes, we can. Right. And you are the change that we've been waiting for. But uh, it doesn't seem like people got that message. No, I think they, they heard the change part and they said, oh, good, he's going to change it. And they missed the part where he said, it's up to each one of us and I can't do this alone. <laughs> and somehow that, that part of the message got lost. Janessa Gans Wilder is the CEO and founder of the Euphrates Institute, an organization that builds peace and understanding about critical Middle East issues. And it sounds like anywhere else where people are getting separated from each other as well. Janessa, thanks for talking to us today on Peace Talks Radio. It's been a delight. Thank you so much, Paul. We have links to Janessa Gans Wilder's Euphrates Institute website, partial transcript of today's show, audio links, pictures there too, and more at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the programs in our series going back to 2002. It's also where you can learn how to contribute your support to this effort. Peacetalksradio.com. Nola Days Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.